Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. Science has now categorically shown us that humanity is on a crash course to make the planet largely uninhabitable. But our normal senses aren't working. We can't hear, smell, see or touch climate change. And we've never evolved the sixth sense to understand these massive global issues. But now the science of climate change has proven we are faced with the biggest communications problem of all time. And today's guest on First Mile's Climate Heroes is working on solutions to solve this problem. Sophie Galwa is co-founder of the climate agency who believe that environmental jargon and lack of emotional relevance is holding us back. And climate specialists are often talking to themselves within a climate bubble and can't seem to gain broad attraction with the general public. Sophie, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Bruce. Thank you very much. And well done on the French name pronunciation. Really good, really good work. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm a terrible linguist, so I, I, I will take that. I appreciate it. So, no, Sophie, I'm really excited about this uh, episode of Climate Heroes because I'm a social scientist and there's not enough social science in climate change. And you're absolutely right. It's all about communicating now. We, you know, we got set back somewhat with the science and the climate deniers but the science is now categorically there and we really do just now need to get the people on board the politicians on board and uh, some of these big plcs on board and as you've quite rightly identified we have a massive uh communication issues issues so and how's how's the climate agency solving that and what's your role Right. Well, I founded the Climate Agency um, last July with a co-founder, and uh, there's a little group of us, and uh, we've been helping climate startups and climate NGOs globally. I mean, you know, you know, from Berlin to Vancouver, to find the right message and express themselves, and talking to climate scientists and trying to make them understand that 25 acronyms a minute is not the right way forward. Excellent. But much um, more on that. <laughs> <laughs> How did you how did you get into this area? So you started the climate agency a year ago almost now. What made you become a climate hero? Why did you set up the climate agency? Yeah. Well, I wish I had a better story for that, a ha-ha moment. <laughs> you know, the Joan of Arc, you know, the angels are talking to you, go and uh, get the English out of France or whatever. But it didn't quite happen like that. I spent uh, 30 years in the corporate world at, you know, very senior levels. And then I was, um, I went to work at UNICEF in the UK. And that was at the time of COP26. And because COP26 was in Glasgow, um, UNICEF UK and, and me and my team coordinated uh, UNICEF's presence with COP26. So I started to meet with the government and the other NGOs and really hearing more and more about, about climate. And that really got me quite, quite interested. And after that, I did the mission as a, for six months as a CEO of an ocean charity called 10% for the Ocean. And I met quite a lot of marine scientists there. And I remember, you know, you get some really dry very senior scientists and they're talking to you, you know, very calm and posed way. And then I said, well, how do you feel about climate? And this one said, well, well so- Sophia, I'm terrified. And this was not the word you expect somebody like that to use. And it kind of really shook me. And so little by little, it became clear that all my energy was ready to go into climate, really. I really didn't want to do anything else. It just kind of happened gradually. And um, I got asked to be at the board of a number of um, 
climate-related organization. I think the reason they asked me to go on the board is because they wanted free marketing advice and fair on them. And little by little, it made me understand that there was a need for marketing, communication, strategic advice. And um, because basically, the vast majority of the climate world, in my perspective, believes that pushing facts out is going to persuade everybody to do what, the right thing. Now, if pushing facts out worked, everybody would be vaccinated. You know, I mean, that's just not the way things work. And so, and do you think that's where we've got to in summary? I quite like it that we've basically just gone, actually, there's all this information. And, and I, I meet people all the time and they sort of start with the facts of the of the issue and reel off some numbers. And then you sort of like, you know, people say it to me all the time, it's like, well, that's what does a thousand tons of carbon dioxide look like? What does it actually mean? And do you think we've sort of been so focused on trying to prove the rational science of climate change that we've now just become sort of stuck in this rut of just sort of spouting facts constantly? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's two things. And uh, in your introduction, you, you referred to the fact we we can taste, smell, hear climate change. You know, not really. And I think that the third thing is, I think climate change is a problem that's uniquely wrong for our human brain. You know, we've evolved our our, our, our brain, our way of thinking, and taking in reality over hundreds of thousands of years. And basically, we're kind of formatted to react to immediate danger, what's close to us, what's relevant to us, things that are, and that relate to our experience. You know, there's a lion in that bush that may be jumping on you. You need to focus on that. Things that you don't really, that are intangible, that are not directly close to you physically, that are not directly in the short term. We're really bad at analyzing and dealing with. And that's something that's proven by, you know, psychological um, behavioral science, behavioral psychology. It's, it's things they do again and again, how people make the wrong decision or analyze badly when it's something that's very removed from them. So that's the first th- that's the first thing, which means it's very hard for us to actually understand this. If there was a possibility to bring climate really close to you, which means you're never going to be able to go skiing again, or I don't know, something really close to your personal experience, then you'd get a different, a different impact. And secondly, as you say, that field is dominated rightly by extremely clever people who are scientists or engineers. They all have you know, multiple PhDs from MIT, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on, and um, very clever. And they embrace complexity and jargon and talk in a language that is not the language that the rest of the world understands. And so you've got, I think that's that bridging the gap is so important because, you know, we are, we, you know, we've only been around a couple of hundred thousand years and we've been very much designed to survive in a small location geography environment we were never we, were, we didn't evolve to fly across the world on a on a boeing 747 so how do we yet the climate crisis is global it's complicated it's quite abstract for most of us and arguably you know you're quite right when you can't ski anymore or when you've got water lapping at your front door or when you've got sort of aridification and 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 drought it's going to be too late when it's actually uh, very local so how do we from a communication perspective how do we bridge that massive gap from being you know well it's not happening to me today therefore i'm fine to actually getting people to think about it and and sort of overcoming this sort of as you say, the scientific jargon and the facts and, and moving the debate away from the climate scientists and the technical lawyers into the sort of the realm of everyday language. 
That's a great question, Bruce. Let me give you the answer to solve the world. <laughs> no, of course, there isn't one answer, yeah. you know. In fact, what's really interesting is when I started this, um, and I started preparing to launch a climate agency two years ago, the, the more people I talk to, organizations, companies, startups, NGOs, and so on, they all, that work around climate, they all say the same thing. They don't want to talk to the public. There's no time. Their general feeling is there is no time to convince everybody. I mean, the very tangible consequences, serious consequences of climate change will start happening by 2040, 2050. I mean, there is no time. You know, it's it, so therefore communication needs to be useful. And so therefore it needs to target the people who can do something. So this could be finance companies stopping investing in some particular type of companies. It could be governments having some regulatory impact. Who influences governments? How do you influence them? How do you influence finance regulation, companies, corporates? It, it, it's about who can do what and influencing them. There is no time to get all the billions of people on earth on the same page on this. Neither are there any of the means. So that's the big picture stuff. I've got to say, there's some small wins that could be achieved quite easily. I've got here a quote. There's a, there's a media outlet called Greenpeace that specializes in renewable energy and some climate stuff. And uh, in, on February 13, they wrote something about how incompetent this whole sustainability communication was. And I got this quote. They said, it's all about impenetrable jargon. I'm quoting head-scratching facts, overarching generalization, and way too many buzzwords. And in climate, I would add, you have acronyms, billions of numbers, units like gigaton. What is a gigaton? Nobody has a clue. So just having some basic discipline in terms of how you communicate is, is an easy thing to start with. And do you think uh, this is how Greta Thunberg cut through? Because she just sort of stood up on podium and said, the world is on fire. I mean, that, that's the sort of general crux of it. Do you think that we need language as sort of similar or as emotive as that? Well, I think emotion is very important. Behavioral science gives us, there's some, you know, behavioral scientists working specifically around the environment. And what they're saying, I hope you don't mind being, being a tiny bit theoretical here, but the free access they give you is leverage positive emotion. I'm just going to stop. Leverage positive emotion is the way to get heard, which is really hard because instead of telling people, look, it's terrifying. It's it's something really real that is happening in the next few decades. You're just going to freeze people like rabbits in the headlight. You have to say, great opportunities, thousands of jobs <laughs> could boost the economy. It could be great. You know, you have to find positive opportunities so that people have agency and can engage. If people think there's no solution, then they're just going to shut everything down and live on the day to day. So leverage positive emotion is important, which is not really what Greta was doing, yeah, although she true. did a fantastic job. Yeah. You know, the second thing is frame messaging to your personal values um, and to your interest. It's you know, people are not not that many people are going to do something because they want to save the planet. It's sad, but it's, you know, you need to find something in between, such as hey, it's going to give you more status, or it's going to make you belong to a particular community. It's going to look good on your CV. I don't know. You know, you need to find something that's going to leverage a personal. It sounds cynical. I'm sorry. I promise. It all comes from scientific paper I read. And the last one was to personalize and humanize. And, uh, you know, we're, we like to be told stories. We need heroes. We need enemies. We need, you know, 
Superman to save us. I don't know. We, we, and that's why Greta worked as well. You know, the little girl with the pigtails, you know, talking to all these big people. Wow, that's a story there. We, we like, you know, we like human stories. And um, if you talk about gigatons, an acronym with that, I mean, you, you can look at 10 climate websites. Nine and a half will not have a human being on their website. It will all be clouds, forest, graphs, you know, and complicated, you know. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. Let's move on. Another question I've got for you around communication, because this is super interesting, is around carbon dioxide. And I'm guilty of uh, sort of talking about carbon and it's become very sort of um, entered into sort of modern day sort of terminology. And a lot of people I talk to, both sort of more broadly, but in the environmental sector, they think they just talk about carbon or carbon dioxide and they tend to think that the environmental crisis is just an energy crisis and, and that's only a third of our emissions and there's all of the other emissions from the things that we eat and make and build. Do you think part of the problem here is that we've made it all too narrow and uh, you know, carbon dioxide is so sort of like, A, it's not solid and B, it's like so vague that we're not getting any traction whereas you know if you compare it with covid um you know we all behaved ourselves and stayed at home very quickly because there was sort of a a very clear message to deliver look i've Be- never seen anything as complicated as climate change ever <laughs> every time you to look at the the slightest chapter has like 10 southern scientists working saying different things with lots of computer modeling saying yes but it depends completely on it's just unbelievably complex and everything in, is interrelated climate is everything it's it's health it's food it's biodiversity it's 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 fairness it's social justice it's everything the problem is when something is everything it becomes nothing at the same time you know you can so i personally and that may be my personal mindset I like simplicity and I loved, um, I don't know if you saw at the opening c- ceremony of COP26, David Attenborough came and he, he, on stage and he says, there's only one thing you need to remember. There's one number you need to remember. And that's 420, which is a PPM, the part per million. It is CO2, you know, it, uh, it should be greenhouse gas, but it is a gas in the atmosphere. And basically you've got this blanket of gas surrounding the earth and that blanket is making it warmer and warmer and warmer and 420 is how thick that blanket is and it has grown more this year than ever before it's never declined it's never stabilized it grows faster and faster there is zero implication so far we haven't done anything concretely so the one thing i would say i like simplicity at the same time i agree with you on carbon because there is another gas that is in my mind completely neglected which is methane and uh, don't ask me what methane looks like. I have no idea. But I think it's just natural gas. It's the one you used to cook with. You know, it's the one that comes out uh, of the North Sea. And methane is 80 times more powerful at heating the atmosphere than CO2 over a 20-year period. It's a very short-term gas. It's like a blowtorch. It goes woof and Sorry, I'm having doing French noises here. I'm not sure that's, a, <laughs> that's this perfect. was the sound of methane hitting the atmosphere. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's like a blowtorch on the atmosphere. So 
that's bad. It, and it's recognized by scientists. The quickest way, the easiest way, the only way really to reduce the climate, climate change in the short term is to reduce methane. And on top of it, it's not that difficult. I mean, it's like carbon is complicated. We have to change our whole way of life, renewable energy, grids. Methane, a lot of it is leaked by pipeline. I mean, plugging leaks, I'm sorry, is not beyond the realm of possibility. But people don't want to do it. But, you know, companies don't want to do it because they're not incentivized. They're not regul- there's no regulation. Why would they? And it's also, a lot of it comes from, um, it's charming, cows burping. It's not farting, I'd like to say. Let's be very scientific about this. It's burping. And so all the cows worldwide that produce meat and milk burp a lot of methane, and that's really significant. Uh, Again, this very powerful um, heating gas in the atmosphere. And you think, and there are lots of scientists and researchers working and finding ways to reduce these burps and like, oh, well, let's test it in 50 farms here and 20 farms there. It's like people, we can put human beings on the moon, we can send things to, you know, the outer reach of the universe. We can capture or stop the methane from burping cows. It's possible. It's just not done. So methane is an easier, it's a lower hanging fruit, if you'd like. I don't know. That's not right as a metaphor, but it should be done and it's not done and it's not talked about. And is that the work, is that the work you're doing with um, methane action? Is that is that a, a government sort of initiative, an NGO? Is that what's what's methane action? It's an action? American NGO. Right. Um, it's an American NGO, which is um, very you know uh, very concerned about uh, methane. And it's very scientific, very scientist led. So I just basically tend to stay in a corner and nod my head wildly. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, you know, and I, I try and support whenever I can. But you know, they're very they, they encourage and uh, give grants and s- scientists working on methane, working on removing methane from the atmosphere, of atmosphere, on stopping methane emiti- emissions and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's good. So one of my questions was going to be the top three areas where you think we can make an impact on on climate change through the climate agency or business. But it sounds like you've pulled the rug from under my carpet and just gone for that one. You know, the blowtorch on the climate heat climate warming which is methane and really focus on getting governments and businesses to address their methane emissions that's one thing we should be doing what the climate agency actually does is just help most of us i mean any startup or ngos that works around climate climate solutions is particularly what we're focused on you know and help them communicate what they do properly help them with their strategies their marketing their influencing their website and getting you know designers and uh, and great people we know or a great agency we know from our past worlds to work pro bono at very competitive costs so bring the best of the whole of marketing talent that's out there that is currently working to sell pet food and dog insurance and you know telling hey Bring me your young creatives and I give you a project that is solar panels in Africa, that is carbon removal, lobbying of Brussels with Carbon Gap, for example, which is a big NGO we did a lot of work with, uh, biotech company finding another way to kind of stop methane. I mean, that kind of stuff. So we're not really, you know, we're a non-profit, so, and I don't have any funding, so we, we just are as accessible as we can and we offer our services to help any good climate solution project gets a spotlight they need. Now, the interest, one of the interesting things that you said when I was looking at your um, website and, and researching for the show is, and I hadn't really 
thought about this because I'm sort of excited that there's lots of people out there finding solutions, but you're saying that increasingly with climate initiatives, climate businesses, um, there's so many of them now that the landscape is becoming increasingly competitive, which I sort of hadn't thought about the sort of competitive angle of it. And is this for funding audiences, you know, sort of getting messages across? Why do you believe it's becoming more competitive? I think it is, but I hadn't really sort of... um... Well, it is, but, you know, and that's great because what is the solution? We don't, you know, there's not going to be a silver bullet solution. There's going to be a number of things that are going to be able to help, we hope, you know. And um, it may well be that some of the most significant of them are not invented yet, you know, in terms of uh, direct air capture, in terms of uh, cow burping, whatever, you know, in terms of renewable, you know, batteries or whatever. It may be it's not invented yet. So there's a lot of activity and it's a lot of it is... um, surprisingly small you'd be surprised we look at some website and they're supported by stripe and microsoft and everybody in silicon valley and they're supported by big un organization and you think wow you know big project in the ocean or whatever and then you talk to the guys and they're they're like four people in a university lab and their machine their prototype machine is the size of a lawnmower and you're like oh my goodness and yes, they're seed funding and they're getting millions, but they're still so small. So there's a competition for funding and there's private funding, of course, but the key, key thing that's game changing is government funding. And you know that in the US, Joe Biden has passed this, uh, this law called the Inflation Reduction Act that is, you know, catalyzing billions for this climate solution, such as direct air capture. Uh, and that's really changing the game over there. Um, so there is competition for that funding, and um, but also there are a lot of resources that, um, and I really don't want to get technical, I really don't, particularly since I'm not the right person to, but there, there are things they need. So for example, a lot of those companies need um, disused coal mine or disused oil well, you know, that... Uh, in, for, in order to inject back the liquid CO2 or in order... So you need regulation, you need... There's a lot of stakeholders concerned to allow this to scale. But as an innocent outsider coming into the world of climate, honestly, you think it's a big thing that lots of people are... It's not that big. There aren't that many people. I've been able really quickly to talk to everybody, to talk to really important people, even though I'm like, just new to it. And a lot of the big solution, are, particularly in terms of the carbon removal, the methane and so on, are still very early prototype stage. It's much smaller than you think it is. Direct air, air capture, you mentioned there, and you work with, again, on the board, I think, of the Direct Air Capture Coalition. So this, I think, is becoming an increasingly important area, particularly when you see that we're not actually making as much progress as we need to in terms of reducing the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. Therefore, we're going to have to start taking some out. In very unscientific terms for the listeners, what is direct air, carbon air capture? Yeah, it's like a reverse vacuum cleaner, really. Well, it's kind of a vacuum, you know, it basically is a big turbines that suck in um, the CO2 from the air. Um, it's a bit complicated because there's not very much CO2 in the air. It's a very small, uh, very small proportion. They suck it and then they liquefy it. 
Um, I'm not going to make any noise here, sound, but basically, you know, uh, and then they, you can do different things with it. A lot, most of the time it's injected very deep underground, uh, where over time it becomes rock again. I mean, remember CO2 comes from underground and under the sea and that, you know, so it's interesting because the, the biggest company doing this is called Climeworks. And uh, it's a Swiss company, and they have a big industrial plant in I Iceland. So I thought that was pretty cool that it was kind of led from this side of the Atlantic. And, you know, they were the big pioneers, the two entrepreneurs, and they built these massive plants. And, uh, and they're supported by big corporate partners, the Economist, PNW. But then now the U.S., because of this funding by Biden and so on, it's kind of unleashed this flood of money. So you've got zillions of startups and, you know, even – People from outside the U.S. are moving there to benefit from the. So it would be great if Europe was able to carry on with its uh, original leadership in this, I think. And then, you know, will it, it can remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Can it do it at scale? Can it do it cheaply enough? Can you do it? Can we do it without needing a lot of energy? Because, of course, if you're using loads and loads of energy in order to capture the CO2 well that kind of you know obviously not working the, the right way around I think it's still it's still in the air so the direct air capture coalition is kind of a membership organization that tries to help all the little direct air capture companies to grow and scale and there's loads of different approaches out there and uh, hoping one is really cheap and low energy and can be scaled fast On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So, what or who would it be? I'm going to put David Attenborough in the Hall of Fame. It's probably in everybody's Hall of Fame for every single type of Hall of Fames, but honestly, have a look at on YouTube, have a look at his video of him opening COP26. That's what I show people around me who do not know about climate change. Excellent. We can put him in there on loop presenting COP26 opening speech. And this is sort of slightly my controversial uh, question because I'm sort of hedging my bets uh, as we as we get into 2024 with the general election. If you could have a one-to-one -one with either Rishi Sunak or Sakir Starmer, uh, what would be the key messages that you land on them and you talk to them about? Remember what we said about behavioral science and uh, how to frame something to someone's interest, I will talk about their legacy. I will talk about their legacy. And I said, look, you can have been seen as doing nothing, not good. You can have been seen as following the US, not that amazing. Or you can capitalize on the specific strength that the UK has. And the, the UK has the City of London, which is a fantastic financial institution, which can, you know, have regulation and codes of conduct that can force people to plug their bloody methane leaks and so on. You can use, you know, the fan, you, you've got all the North Sea coal and oil wells, which are resources that can be used for carbon removal. You have a fantastic marine territory. Uh, you can lead in research and exploration. You can lead with Cambridge and Oxford being fantastic university, take the strengths of the UK and become leader and pioneers in specific areas of climate solution uh, and build your legacy as a leader. That's what I tell them. Oh, I wish I could, I wish I could go and talk to them now. That is fantastic. Uh, so they can pull their socks up. Um, Sophie, I'm slightly conscious of time. Do you have a favorite climate success story and how 
was it told so successfully? That's a really difficult question because there are climate success stories, but I'm not aware that they've been told fantastically at all. <laughs> you know, like in the UK here, the, the UK has been very successful at offshore wind farms, for example. You know, that's 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 amazing. I mean, it's, uh, you know, 15 years ago, I thought it was impossible to do this. And I think the UK is leading the way. Is it a story that's told? Why should it be told? Does anybody care? <laughs> I don't know. In France, I mean, I'm going to be very controversial here, but in France, France switched to, don't kill me everyone, but switched to nuclear energy, which is, remember, I'm obsessed about the thick blankets surrounding the earth, which doesn't contribute at all. And so I think 80% of uh, French electricity comes from nuclear instead of coal or, you know, has it been a well told or, you know, it is definitely a climate story. No other country has switched in 15 years to 80% of their electricity for something that's non-polluting. But, you know, it hasn't been well told and people, you know, haven't been particularly happy about it. So I'm not seeing a huge amount of happy stories out there. Do you? Do you know what? I'm so glad. I'm so glad I asked that question because it's actually there are so many good stories, but we're rubbish at telling them. You know, and at the moment, everyone's you know struggling to pay their utilities, but we're still not talking about how successful we are at investing in renewables. And actually, you know, on a windy day, forty percent of our electricity is generated by low cost wind. And if it wasn't, your utility bill would be even higher, and we'd be even in, in a bigger problem. So I think it's absolutely That's pretty cool. It's a, That's really yeah yeah. Amazing. We just need to get better at telling the stories, um, which is really, you know, all about the climate agency and why you are here. So it's fantastic. Sophie, for you, what does success look like at the climate agency? I would like a lot of talented people who do not work in climate, but who are great copywriters, designers, website builders, planners, strategics, you know, business development, whatever, to be able to come to climate. So the bubble grows from people for, from that talent. And I would like to be able to help a lot of the climate solution, um, but set a new standard, really, you know, that little by little, um, they start talking and communicating and explaining themselves in a way that allows them to scale faster. And finally, and the most importantly, is I would like to be able to find a way, get the funding or, you know, to do a big campaign about something to stakeholders, to a particular project that can make a difference, such as, for example, cow burp, or plugging the blooming methane leaks, which is not that complicated, or thinking about the ocean as a climate solution in a way that is going to get the key people, be they politician, civil servants, corporation, finance, the city, whatever, to act. and. Um, and take action. Could you uh, let us know, let the listeners know how they can find you and how the, the uh, website for the Climate Agency? Absolutely. Um, www.climateagency.net. Have a look. Follow us on LinkedIn. That will make us very happy. And even happier, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, which is Climate Agency One, I think. And we post um, examples of what we think is good communication. We post examples of what we think is bad communication. And uh, we have our little rants. And please join, contribute and uh, support us. Sophie, it's been absolutely amazing having you on First Mile's Climate Heroes. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Bruce, thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care.
I'm Bruce Brutley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes, where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.